Let us begin in the name of the Father, and the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen. Our Father, who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done, on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread, and forgive us our trespasses, as we forgive those who trespass against us. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. Amen. In the name of the Father, and the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen. Well, welcome to another edition of Seeds of Truth. This is your host, Joe Holcraft, coming to you from KKXX Studios, Chico Life Radio, 104.5 FM and AM 930. It is great to be with you another Tuesday evening where we are set to continue our exploration of the book of Genesis. We are in, well, chapter 36, but uh, I think we are going to get into uh, chapter 37 this evening. Before we get into those two chapters and respond to a question I received out from yesterday's program, I did just want to continue to welcome all of you who are taking time out of your busy schedules to join me here on Seeds of Truth, in particular those countries of Canada, Argentina, Brazil, Chile, Paraguay, uh, Uruguay, uh, Panama, I see, in Western Europe, Portugal, France, Spain, Croatia, Italy, Germany. I continue to see South Africa and other African countries on the grid, Kenya, Nigeria, even some uh, hits in Egypt, I see. So, as always, it is an honor that you are taking time out of your busy schedule to join me here on Seeds of Truth, reflecting into the richness of the book of Genesis. As you know, if you are a faithful listener, we have been at this for quite some time, working through this book verse by verse. Now, I think <laughs> this is going to be the first chapter, that's chapter 36, that we aren't necessarily going to go through each verse, because I don't think that would be good radio. <laughs> and by that I mean... It's just one very difficult name to pronounce after one very difficult name to pronounce. It's uh, Esau's descendants. Uh, I will highlight a few things, but I thought we would be best served if we more or less went into chapter 37. But again, as I just noted, we are going to address a question that I had received out from yesterday's program, which has us re-engaging the topic of the firstborn. And, and Theologically, this is one of my favorite topics, and I'm very careful to engage with you on air, very rich theological concepts, because I think to some degree, uh, some theological and philosophical concepts really need that dialogue, where I can see you and, and you can see me. Not to say that we don't explore theology, because you know we do, but if I feel like there are some concepts that are difficult to understand, I'm careful to really go too far. Now, in saying that, we are going to explore in more detail only because you asked <laughs> uh, this topic of the firstborn. And, and the question was this, is there a relationship between the stories that encircle the firstborn blessing in the Old Testament with the blessing we receive in the New Testament? Now, the simple answer to that question is emphatically yes, <laughs> emphatically yes. But there's other points to make. You know, we read in Genesis chapter 2, verse 24, that a man leaves his father and mother and is united to his wife, and they become one flesh. One man, one woman for all eternity. Throughout the Old Testament, we encounter men ignoring God's plan for marriage and ultimately taking more than one wife. We also witness throughout the Old Testament the tragic circumstances that unfold when they do. Remember that 
as we've talked about the firstborn blessing and the significance of what this is, this, this family privilege of receiving the father's inheritance and the father's property, only three firstborn sons in the book of Genesis actually show themselves worthy of the firstborn blessing. Who are they but Noah, Shem, and of course Abraham. Every other identifiable firstborn is passed over, right? Why? Because of their unworthy decision-making. For one reason or another, we constantly see throughout the Old Testament the younger son being selected over the older son. And whatever the case might be specific to the patriarch in question, God's preference for the younger, God's preference for the weaker brother over the older and stronger does really pronounce, and as Scott Hahn would put it, and I have him in my ear right now, I can hear him saying it, pronounce and form a significant subplot, just not in the book of Genesis, but really throughout the whole Old Testament. I mean, <laughs> for all intents and purposes, we just spent the last six to seven chapters exploring the soap opera that surrounds Jacob, Leah, and Rachel, right? Jacob loved Rachel from the moment he laid eyes on her. Jacob asked for her hand in marriage. Rachel's father agreed, but then tricked Jacob into marrying Rachel's older sister, Leah. Jacob had sons by both women, with, of course, Leah's sons coming first. If we didn't know better, my friends, you would have thought I was talking about an episode from, I don't know, Days of Our Lives or, or whatever soap opera uh, suits your fancy, huh? <laughs> so here we have this uh, firstborn blessing that is carrying this patriarchal covenantal story. But as we know, it's broken. But as it's broken, we also know that God writes straight with crooked lines. And he does so in this case by what? Giving us his own firstborn son as a blessing that we all actually share in. That is to say, my friends, that we too have an inherited birthright status in and through Jesus. Jesus is the only begotten, not made, firstborn son that has received the authority, power, and, and possession from his Father that we share and that you and I share in. Paul emphasizes this time and time again in his own epistles and throughout the book of Acts that we share in this inheritance. Philippians chapter 2, verses 9 to 11. You also see this in Revelation chapter 19, verse 16 these verses and this language that remind us of our inheritance, that in baptism we have been given this down payment, if you will, this first installment of grace, where we are joint heirs with Jesus. So what does this mean for us? Well, it means that God has blessed us with all the spiritual blessings that belong to Jesus. His blessings are our blessings. The fruit of God's Spirit that lives in Him lives in us. The love that fills His heart fills ours. And remember, in talking about this, He holds nothing back, right? Remember in John chapter 3, what does He say? But when I give the Spirit, I will not portion it out. I don't say a little bit for you and a little bit for you. No, I say all is yours to everyone. And I know for some of us, this might be hard, this language of 
what is his is ours. The fruit of God's spirit that lives in him actually lives in us. That love, the love that fills his heart actually fills ours. But this is what we're talking about. And it might be hard for us because we live in a world that portions everything out. And, and not that portioning things out is a bad thing. You know, I'm a father of four kids and I have to portion out my time sometimes. But this is what is unique to God who is infinite and perfect. He can be all things to all people all the time, anywhere and everywhere, because he's God. So, <laughs> to the question about the relationship between the Old and New Testament, what we ought to understand is that it is a matter of how we see the law of the Old Testament being fulfilled. That while Jesus is the fulfillment to the prophetic thrust of the whole Old Testament, he just isn't fulfilling the Old Testament. He's transformed it into something entirely new. And as he has transformed the law in his very being, he calls us to share in this law. And we share in this law by virtue of baptism and the grace we have received in baptism. I often go to the analogy of how grace is like sap because sap, I think, captures for us the essence of what grace is all about. I mean, what is sap but that very liquidy substance that comes from a tree? What's important for us to understand is that sap contains all of the properties of the tree. It's water, nutrients. It even contains the hormones of the tree, all the life-giving properties of the tree, right? This is what is given to us in grace. We have received all of the life-giving properties that properly belong to God. It even has that element of protection. What happens when sap hardens? It turns into this protective agent, amber. God's grace protects us from the adversary. So not only does God fulfill the law and transform the law, he invites us, as Paul reminds us, to share in the law. And as we share in this law that is life-giving, he also protects us. Amen? Amen. All right, with that, let us turn our attention to chapter 36. And as I noted, I should say to some degree, chapter 37, because chapter 36, as the commentaries highlight, is basically a genealogical record of the Edomites and the Horites. Uh, the first part of Chapter 36, more or less, groups together Esau's wives, his sons and grandsons, and his chiefs. And the second includes a roster of Horite clans. Now, the Horite clans would have been local to uh, that area. So, again, I'm not going to go through all of these names. We would be here for the next hour. At least I, I would need that much time to try to pronounce these Hebrew names. Um, anyhow, what I did want to do is read to you verses 6 to 7, because we were just talking about the firstborn blessing, and there is a theological point to make. We read in chapter 36, verse 6 and 7, Then Esau took his wives, his sons, his daughters, and all the members of his household, his cattle, all his beasts, and all his property which he had acquired in the land of Canaan, and he went into a land away from his brother Jacob, for their possessions were too great for them to dwell together, the land of their sojournings could not support them because of their cattle. So Esau dwelt in the hill country of Seir. Esau is 
Edom. Okay, so in verse 7, we read of these possessions. Now, I thought this to be interesting because what you have here is an overcrowding. And overcrowding here pressures Jacob and Esau to separate their tribes, just as it forced Abraham and Lot to part company and settle their families and flocks in different lands. The, the parallel here, theologically, I think is widely significant as it speaks to the firstborn blessing, because in both cases, the elect patriarch stays behind in Canaan, Abraham and Jacob, while his kinsmen, Lot and Esau, venture outside its borders. And now, what does that mean? Well, it excludes them from the blessings of the promised land. Remember that in Genesis chapter 12, verses 1 to 3, part of the covenant blessing, part of the covenant inheritance was what? But the promised land, right? So very important, very important for us because, well, my friends, <laughs> bring this back to the opening inquiry, the new land is what? But the church, as the church is the new Jerusalem come down from heaven. Once we equate the promised land with the church, then we can really get at that question. What's the relationship between the firstborn blessing that we find in the Old Testament and the firstborn blessing that we receive in the New Testament. Because we are just not baptized into Christ, but the mystical body of Christ and His church. The church that has come down from heaven. What does Jesus say to Peter? I will give you the keys to the kingdom of heaven here on earth, the church. And death itself will not prevail against it. Now, I was talking about this at a talk some weeks ago. And I got a question after the talk, Joe, can you explain to me further the relationship between land and church? And the point that came to mind then, I'll share with you now. In the book of Revelation, we, we read how the heavenly Jerusalem is coming down out from heaven onto the altar. What is meant by that language? Let us take a step back. What does the word Bethlehem mean? Where Jesus was born but the house of bread, right? The house of bread. When we come to understand that Jerusalem is just not the city of peace, but the city of peace where God will provide the lamb, ultimately, that lamb is what? But the bread made the body of Jesus Christ. And that is what comes down from heaven onto the altar. The first Christians built churches because it was going out from the world and into a new world, a new land, a new building where you were to worship God in spirit and truth as Jesus spoke to it to the Samaritan woman in John chapter 4. The promised land that is given to us, yes, is Jerusalem. But that new Jerusalem, that city of peace where God provides the Lamb is the church in the Eucharist. Amen? Amen. All right, now, chapter 37. Before we don't get to chapter 37, what I want to do is read to you, well, we'll start with verses 1 to 4, and then we'll just kind of go from there. Jacob dwelt in the land of his father's sojournings, in the land of Canaan. This is the history of the family of Jacob. Joseph, being 17 years old, was shepherding the flock with his brothers, he was a lad with the sons of Bilhah and Zilpah, his father's wives, 
and Joseph brought an ill report of them to their father. Now Israel loved Joseph more than any of his children, because he was the son of his old age, and he made him a long robe with sleeves. But when his brothers saw that their father loved him more than all his brothers, they hated him and could not speak peaceably to him. Well, let me say, <laughs> there is obviously a whole lot here. But before we get into the nuances of some of these verses, I just wanted to remind you of something I talked about long ago when we first started reading the book of Genesis, and it was more our treatment of how to read the book of Genesis. In one of our first programs, I was talking about the structure of the book of Genesis, how you can read it in two phases. In chapters 1 to 11, identified as either primeval history or the history of the early world, and then chapters 12 to 50, patriarchal history. Now, as that offers us a nice categorical way of reading the book of Genesis, Genesis 1 to 11 and 12 to 50, I would break that off even more. I would say one should read it 1 to 11, 12 to 36, and 37 to 50, because really in chapters 37 to 50, you have something changing, and that is the final storyline in Genesis as it is devoted to Jacob's sons, especially Joseph, and maybe we could say to a lesser extent, uh, Judah. We see this in the language, uh, this is the history of the family of Jacob, right? This is the history of the family of Jacob. This is the Toledoth, that phrase that we have seen 11 times now. In point of fact, this is the last time that you will see that phrase, this is the history, or these are the descendants. Why? Because now we have moved into, well, the last phase of history as we read it in the book of Genesis. So this is the history, uh, that formula that introduces new phases of history into our, into our reading. My dear friends, we ought to tease this out even further. We ought to reflect into how all of our stories ought to be seen as epics, stories that people want to know about. Maybe your story ought to read, this is the history of fill-in-the-blank, right? This is the history of Joe Holcraft. We want to get to know the stories of those names we become so fascinated by. In secular culture, certainly many of us are fascinated by the stories that surround maybe the president and maybe a Tiger Woods, Michael Jordan, LeBron James, so on and so forth. We want to get to know their stories because of how they are in the spotlight. But the thing of it is, I say secular culture and society because there is a whole other realm to it. The spiritual realm, the spiritual reality, if we are living as we ought, then people will want to get to know our story. And maybe it will be after we have passed, right? There's the great story that comes to us from uh, Blessed Giorgio Frassati, where during his funeral, many people were surprised because of the hundreds of people that showed up. People didn't realize that young Frassati was reaching out to so many people, and so many people wanted to say goodbye to him. In essence, his funeral was a testament to a life that was an epic. When people hear about Giorgio Fassati, his story starts with what? This is the history. Because my dear friends, that is a figure we want to get to know about. That is a story 
we want to know. So the question I pose to you this day is, are you living a life that, that people will want to know about? If people were writing about your life, would it begin, this is the history? Well, these last 14 chapters are about Jacob's sons, in particular Joseph. So it starts with, this is the story, this is the history of Jacob, and it goes right to Joseph for a reason. Amen? Amen. All right. So, chapter 37. Never let age be a disqualifier to greatness. I was just talking about the great Frasati, I should say the young Frasati, because he was young when he died, and although young when he died, he accomplished great things. There are many young saints, many young saints. Joseph, being 17 years old, was shepherding the flock with his brothers. He was a lad with the sons of Bilhah and Zilpah, his father's wives, and Joseph brought an ill report of them to their father. Now Israel loved Joseph more than any other of his children because he was the son of his old age, and he made him a long robe with sleeves. Uh, what is this long robe with sleeves? Well, in the Greek, it is a visible sign of Jacob's favor, clearly. Uh, the Greek suggests that it is a tunic that was striped or multicolored. This is why we say the, the multicolored robe of Joseph. Now, allegorically, and when I say allegorically, what I intend to mean there is something being described under the image of another. Um, allegorically, St. Cyril of Alexandria, a great church father, said this about this text. And I came across this in the Ignatius commentary, and I just absolutely love this. This is St. Cyril of Alexandria. The multicolored robe prefigures the glory with which the Father clothed the Son at his coming. And just as the sons of Jacob become enraged with their father's beloved Joseph, so the Pharisees would flame with anger against Christ, though he was destined to be their superior. I just love that, that, that juxtaposition between Joseph and Jesus. And, and what I additionally love about this piece is, well, just yesterday, we celebrated the Feast of the Transfiguration. Footnote, by the way, our program on Thursday, because I have received so many questions about yesterday's feast day, is going to be devoted to the Transfiguration. To this point, and, and to our context this evening, what was the transfiguration, and what might it have to do, if anything, with this story? Well, the transfiguration was Christ, without ceasing to be who he was, in the eyes of the apostles who, who witnessed the transfiguration, became something more. That's the great truth, and we're going to really get into this on Thursday, but that's the great truth of the, of the transfiguration. Without ceasing to be who he was... He was still fully human. He became something more. He became something more. So a Saint Cyril of Alexandria writes about this multicolored robe. He speaks to it as a clothing, this great clothing. So just as the father robes Joseph with this multicolored, brilliant robe, so does God the Father all the more wrap his son with the brilliant light of truth, beauty, and goodness there on Mount Tabor, right? <laughs> there on Mount Tabor. Again, that is just a, 
a foretaste of what we're going to explore on Thursday, but I thought there certainly to be a direct correlation. Here you have a father robing a son and finding favor upon him. What do we hear on Mount Tabor? But look upon my son, my beloved servant, on whom I have found favor. A direct correlation. A point to be had about Joseph. And we can never reinforce this enough. For all of the great figures, all of the great patriarchs, all of the great prophets, all of the great lawgivers of the Old Testament, the only figure in all of the Old Testament who doesn't fall per se, who doesn't give in to his or her concupiscent appetite, that appetite which is an inclination to sin, is Joseph. This is why he receives, I would argue in the biblical tradition, the greatest affirmation of being just. Because in the Hebrew mindset, and it certainly transfers into the Greek, to be just is to be profoundly holy, upright, true to who you are, a man of no guile. This is Joseph. This is Joseph, the guardian of truth. Just he was. Verse 4, But when his brothers saw that their father loved him more than all his brothers, they hated him and could not speak peaceably to him. They were so enraged with anger, they could not even speak peaceably to him and I'm sure about him. Over the past several months, as we have gone through this book verse by verse, I have touched upon some emotions, right? We've, we have talked about fear. We have talked about anger. We have talked about hate. We have talked about all of that. And that is what you see going on here. There is an interpersonal dynamic going on between Joseph and his 11 brothers that we can all learn from. That we can all learn from. Amen? Amen. All right, let us close with a word of prayer. All glory be to the Father, and to the Son, and to the Holy Spirit, as it was in the beginning, is now, and ever shall be, world without end. Amen? And God bless you. Thanks for listening to Seeds of Truth, heard every evening, Monday through Friday at 5.30 here on KKXX. If you'd like to hear this program or find out how you can help support Seeds of Truth, the website is joeholcraft.org.